0: Well, I am very excited about what we're going to be doing this week, but before I talk about what we're doing this week, I want to talk about what we're doing next week, and that is we're kicking off a brand new sermon series, and inside your Pathway Notes, you have this little flyer right here. I encourage you to take that out and look at it and notice this if you haven't already. Our new sermon series is called Fresh Start. Fresh Start fresh start. I wonder if you've ever been in a circumstance where you have have been making your way along and there are just some challenges that have come up and maybe you've found that you've kind of gotten mired down in a little something. You kind of get stuck there for a little while and you'd be like, you know what? I wish I could get a fresh start over this or maybe it's got something to do with relationships. Maybe it's got something to do with your prayer life. Maybe it's got something to do with the depth of the faith that you are experiencing and the way that you're living that out and it's like, yeah, things are okay, but they could certainly be better. I kind of wish I could just get a a fresh start. Well, we're going to be talking about that kicking off next week. It's just, it's going to be a kind of a quick five-week series, at least quick in relationship to where we have been lately, and I'm very much looking forward to getting that started next week. Now, this that you have in your pathway notes, you don't need this anymore. Yes, you could put it up on your refrigerator if you wanted just to remind you, and that's not bad, but what would be better is that you would take it and make sure it gets on the neighbor's refrigerator or somebody else that you know who maybe in their life, they could be in a place where they could use a fresh start or some... Use this as an invitation. That's what this is for. So you you already know the information starting next week and uh, you don't need to be reminded of that again, but somebody else would and you can maybe take it to work or to the neighbor or to a friend or to a family member and uh, let them know of what is coming up and we'd love to have them welcomed in as we get things kicked off for that next week. So looking forward to that. Also very much looking forward to what we are taking on here today as well. I'm wondering if this sounds familiar to you. I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. I'm sure that does sound pretty familiar to you. Those are the the famous last words of the patriot, uh, Nathan Hale, who was at the age of 21 He was hanged for spying on the British. He was caught, and he was hanged, and that was what he said. Those were his famous last words. Or Leonardo da Vinci said this, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Now there's a guy with high standards, right? Because we marvel at his work, but that's what he said as he was preparing to die. Some last words are also famous, but kind of ironic. General John Sedgwick, just before he was killed by a Confederate sniper's bullet, said this. He said, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. Kind of poignant when you stop to think about it, isn't it? Or Oscar Wilde, who fancied himself to be a bit of of an interior decorator, looked around his room shortly before he died, and he said, this wallpaper is horrible. One of us has to go. One more, there's Leonardo, or excuse me, uh, Leonard Nimoy, who offered his final tweet just before his death in 2015. He said, perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory. L-L-A-P. L-L-A-P, of course, which stands for? Live long. All right, we've got some Trekkies here. Yeah, very good. Well, Famous last words are poignant because they they tell us something about, and they're powerful because they tell us what was going on in the mind of that person at that point. And this has been on my mind as I've been thinking about the last words that we are going to be taking a look at today from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And you would think that these would be famous last words as well. You would think that we would naturally call them that because they're in the Bible. But today, what I'm calling them are unfamous last words because oftentimes they get neglected. Oftentimes they get overlooked. And by the way, in case you're wondering, unfamous is a word, all right? So no emails. It really is a word. Now, I understand why it gets overlooked. I understand why that can happen, It doesn't seem to measure up. Chapter 16 of the book of Romans doesn't seem to measure up with all of the glorious things that we have been reading and looking at all the way along where it talks about the gospel and how Paul's not ashamed of the gospel and how it talks about sin and how we have a way to overcome that sin through Jesus and through his work and how God demonstrated his love for us and how he works all things together for good all of these soaring themes and ideas in these verses that we memorize and that we quote and when we come to chapter 16 We just don't have all of that same sort of stuff in the same way that we don't go and celebrate. We don't have memory verses that come out of Romans chapter 16. And so oftentimes what happens is it just gets glossed over. It just kind of gets scanned through if you look at it at all. I know of one pastor who preached a series all the way through the book of Romans, and he just skipped chapter 16. Like there's nothing left worth reading as we get to that place. And I hope that when we get done, you'll recognize how big of a mistake that is. Romans 16 is where we're going to be. If you haven't already, open up your Bible to Romans 16 or open up those Scripture journals to Romans 16. I hope you brought your Scripture journal back with you. If you've had that, in fact, I would love to see if you have your Scripture journal, hold it up so I can see it. Would you? That is fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, I'm getting weepy up here just seeing all of that. That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for bringing that back week by week. That means so much, and I hope more to you even than it does to me. I hope it's been beneficial and that you have, you have a nice tool there that you can have and that you can, can uh, put on your shelf and pull it out and refer to it often when it comes. You have your own commentary, essentially, on the book of Romans. That's fantastic. That encourages me so much to see that. Romans 16 is where we are going to be. Welcome to those who are listening on in other places at home or on our Moon Campus or the uh, classic venue wherever you are. Just to look though at Romans 16, and I want you to just do that. Just scan just kind of down the page of Romans chapter 16, and you can see some of the reason why this gets overlooked. You, you see, it just looks like a bunch of names that are listed there. And so people are like, yeah, this, sound, this looks like a genealogy. This looks pretty boring. And so I'm not going to read through it. I don't even know what those names are. And so it's not all that important to me. So I'm not going to pay that much attention. It kind of looks like Paul somehow accidentally slipped in his Christmas card list into the end of the book of Romans. And he's probably trying to think, you know, do I send to them again this year? They didn't send to me last year. And, you know, he's working through all of that. But again, I hope that you will see as we make our way through this that to just make these unfamous last words, to just set them aside, is a huge, huge mistake. This is our last sermon in our series Romans, grace changes everything. This is where we have been looking all the way along. I hope that it's been as much of a blessing to you as it's been to me as we've worked our way all the way through all 16 chapters of the book of Romans. I'm not going to say it was a long series, but when we started, Pastor Jason had two kids and now he's got 8 all right all right well well that's not actually true but it is true that when we started pastor Ben had two kids but now as of Tuesday he's got 3 That is so awesome. We're so excited for Pastor Ben and Connie and the Lord's blessing in their lives and in their family. But today we're wrapping up this study, and as we do, we're going to see a few principles that Paul lays out there that we can glean from what we have here in Romans 16 that we can take and that we can apply into our own lives and our relationships in the church. And the first of those principles, therefore, your outline, you can fill in the blanks as we go here. The first of those principles is the benefit all the way around when we serve the body. When we serve the body, and that's what we see all of these people doing. As chapter 16 gets underway, it's obvious that this long list of names are not just names. These are people that Paul knows. These are acquaintances of Paul. These are people that he has served with and who have come to serve him, and they've worked together on any of a number of things. These are all acquaintances of him. And now these people are all in Rome. It's amazing to me that Paul was even able to keep up with the fact that these people have all gone to Rome. Remember, he hasn't been there. He didn't see them there and is now saying, Well, greet all these people who I saw there a few weeks ago when I was there. He's never been, these are people he's met along the way on his journeys. They've worked together, they've served together, and somehow he's kept up with these people and the fact that they're all in Rome. That's pretty amazing when you stop to think about it. I mean, he couldn't just go and check their Facebook status and see where they were, he couldn't just text them and say, Where are you living now? He had to keep up by other means it just speaks to the fact that he he leaned into and he cherished those relationships that he had with other people. Sometimes we think he's this great intellect and he was so driven he didn't have time for relationships. This is very different from that as we look at it. Now what I want to do is is just read this first half of the chapter a little bit more just so that we can see it so that we can Draws from it what conclusions we might be able, and it's important that we would hear it kind of together in order to do that. It's going to give us a flavor for it. And my sense is this is probably the only time the lion's share of us who are here have ever heard Romans 16, these unfamous last words of Paul ever read. So we're going to do it. Here we go. Starting in verse 1, he writes, chapter 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their neck for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their home. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet those. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas. Hermas and the brothers who are with them greet Philologus, Hermes or Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, what stands out to you as we read our way through that? Did you make any observations as we were making our way along? Let me share a few with you. One of those that stands out to me is that here we have this large group of people, all of whom have been serving the church all of whom are ones who maybe serve to meet the needs of other people. Maybe they stood with Paul and ministered to him and beside him. In fact, we're told that a couple of them kind of saved his neck in one particular circumstance that Paul was in. We know that some of these are people who were hosting the church in their home. These are people who are all serving the Lord, serving the body of Christ. even mentions Andronicus and Junia, who he says are fellow prisoners. Then he just goes on without any extra explanation as to why they were in prison. You know, you would think that that might be a detail you would want to include. I mean, if I went off to some foreign country and I wrote a letter back to you and I said, hey, would you all please greet my former cellmates? I'm thinking that the elders would probably want an explanation of what was going on with that. But Paul doesn't do it. It's kind of like, well, it's, it's, it's unremarkable. And in many ways it is because Paul oftentimes found himself in chains because of his faithfulness to the gospel, because he preached and he didn't back down. And that oftentimes got him in trouble. And it says here he's with these other two guys who he says were in the faith even before I was, which is suggesting that they're in for the same thing and that they're well known by the apostles, probably all serving the gospel together in that way. Another thing that may stand out to you is that many of these, most of these names don't even ring a bell for you, right? You have most of those you've never heard before unless you've read Romans 16, because this is the only place that we find them. There are a few exceptions, but for the most part, these are just ordinary kind of whoever you are people, kind of like us, like you and me, who just recognized that there was an opportunity to serve they were called to serve and and they went out to the volunteer table in the lobby after the service and and they and they talked to whoever was there about getting connected and they did and that's why we have them now included because of their faithfulness now they're in this inspired letter of Paul but they were just ordinary people who got connected and and started to do their thing one more thing that stands out is how diverse the church in the 1st century Rome was. Several commentators have done a great job of pointing this out. Keller is one of those and he breaks this down into three different categories of diversity. Three categories of diversity, and the first of those that he mentions is or that we see here is race. Is race? Paul, of course, was Jewish, as was Prisca, or sometimes you see it as Priscilla and Aquila. They also were Jewish people, and they went and they did the work of the ministry, and they were also tent makers like Paul. They're the two that saved the neck of Paul, probably when he was in Ephesus, and they're rioting, and they're ready to take him down. It's probably the circumstance he's talking about where they step in, but there are other Jewish believers, and they are working, and so you've got those people in the church, and those people who are are following after, and then at the same time, you've also got a number of Gentiles who are in this list as well, uh, including this uh, guy Epinetus, who is Paul's first convert in Asia, Pretty remarkable that these Jews and Gentiles, for all of the differences that they had, were able to come together in the church. But that is able to be done because they have a common Lord. They've got a common Savior who will and can unite. It's a beautiful thing. And the beauty of this racially diverse church in Rome is wonderful to see. And that can be a model for us. In fact, that must be a model for us. I long to see when this congregation would become more and more and more diverse as well. And I pray toward that end, and I invite you to pray toward that end as well, that we might work together, that we might contend together with those of other races and coming from other places for the gospel, working side by side. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. Now, I know that a lot of people, at least around here would say, uh, I mean around these parts, would say, well, you know, as you think about it, the demographics of our area don't really Support that because there aren't that many Asians or Hispanics or really, in the grand scheme of things, African Americans in our county. And so you would never expect that to happen, but that's no justification. That's just an excuse. And I want to invite you to pray with me and to work with me that we might see a place like this become to look more like what heaven's going to look like. Worshiping side by side side. I hope you'll be on board and get on board and assist toward that end. Another area where we see diversity in the Roman church has to do with not just race but class. Class as well. You have upper class people like Aristobulus and Narcissus who were the heads of estates. Many people believe that this Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod, Herod the Great, which would signal wealth and, and power and position as, as well. And right next to these guys are Rufus and Urbanus. Those are common slave names. And here they are side by side in the church, sitting next to one another, worshiping together, fellowshipping together. And Paul's saying, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. That might be the one verse that you recognize from Romans 16. And it might not even be that you recognize it from Romans 16 because you also find it in 1 Corinthians. You find it in 2 Corinthians, Paul says it. You find it in 1 Thessalonians, as well as here. It could be that they'd kind of fallen out of the practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. I know we have, (laughs) so I've got an exercise. I want you to pair off. No, we're not going to do that. But in the first century here, what you have when this holy kiss is offered, it was something that showed respect. And friendship. It showed love toward one another, the upper class together with the slaves sitting side by side with one another offering this demonstration of friendship and kinship with one another. That's only going to happen in the church because they recognize that there's a unity that they share even even though they're at different ends of, of the spectrum when it comes to their actual status from a society standpoint. Jesus Levels the playing field as it will. He brings us all together as equal, regardless of who we are and what we've done, because we're here under the banner of Jesus Christ. One other aspect of diversity that we see here is about gender. It's about gender. About a third of the people in this list that we just read are women. About a third of them are women, and they're obviously making a huge contribution when it comes to serving the body, and that's very significant, especially in that day and age, in that male-dominated society, which ancient Rome completely was, Jerusalem was, all of the world at that time was. So even to have a woman mentioned in something like this is remarkable in and of itself, let alone so positively mentioned. And right at the top of the list. Sort of figuratively and literally, because she comes in verse one, is Phoebe. Phoebe is one that we're told is a servant in the church. That word servant is the word, the Greek word diakonos, which could mean just servant, or it could also mean the more official deacon or deaconess. It's the same word that applies for both of those things. A lot of commentators believe that since it's said that she is. Uh, Diaconas of the church in Centuria that is talking about the more official position, and we can't say with 100% certainty what that is, but what we do know is that she played a major role in the church and in Paul's ministry. She's actually called a patron, which suggests that she's wealthy and that she is giving of her wealth to serve other people, and she's financially supporting work that is being done, including Paul. Paul says she's helped me me out in that way. And we also see there that Paul is saying that I commend her to you, which most commentators believe is him saying that he's commending her to them because she's the one that he gave the letter to to carry it to Rome from Corinth where it was written. You also have Priscilla who we're told in the book of Acts helped to mentor Apollos who was a significant preacher in the early church. The point is that there's a diversity of gender. There's also many men who are mentioned in the list, of course. There's a diversity of gender who were doing the work of the ministry there in the first century church in Rome, and Paul is highlighting that. Of course, we also are greatly blessed as a church by amazing contributions and influences of women here. We have tremendous women leaders in various positions and doing a lot of things around these places day to day to day, and where would we be without that? It would not be in a great place. So we're greatly appreciative of the way that God has brought genders together so that we might do the work of the ministry here in this place. When it comes to Paul's last words, though perhaps unfamous in comparison, they're very powerful as they highlight the serving that is going on in the body, that these people are all serving the body. And it's also powerful as they serve to safeguard the message. That's the second thing, to safeguard the message. Not everyone was pulling for the truth of the gospel. If you look at verse 17, he goes on to say, I appeal to you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naïve. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's got no time whatsoever for people who would come into the church and they would teach a lesson, a message that is different from what the message is that is being proclaimed already or proclaiming something that is false teaching and leading people astray. But that's what false teachers did, and in many of Paul's letters he speaks of them. In this particular case, we can't quite tell if they're already on the scene or if Paul's just expecting that pretty soon somebody's going to show up in that regard, but he gives this warning. He says they're cunning. He says they're crafty. He says they're deceptive. He says they use flowery language, and they're smooth talkers, and they convince people to walk after them. And one of the reasons or one of the ways they're able to do that is they have this message. It oftentimes sounds pretty close to the real thing, but it's far enough off that it totally sets them aside from following after Christ. And they're gaining a following by giving them a message which doesn't require quite so much or would be sort of music to their ears. So they might say, you know that that judgment that Paul talks about? That's nonsense. I mean, why would a loving God do that really? He won't. And so why don't you follow me and what I'm teaching instead? Or it might be something about, you know, all those rules that are contained in there that they say you need to live by. No, that's ridiculous. You don't need to, God will be fine with you even if you don't do that. So follow after me and I'll continue to teach you and we'll just have this happy old time with one another. And Paul's fed up with that because he knows that that's creating a circumstance where people are walking into sin he knows that that's creating a situation where there's going to be division that rises up in the church as some go this way and some go that way and Paul says don't have anything to do with these people or with that teaching that is going on he says safeguard the message he says open up your eyes and be on the lookout for evil so that it would not come in and it would not deceive you We, of course, need to have our eyes open, too, because there's false teaching all around us. You can find it every day on cable television. You can certainly find it every day on the Internet. You can find it in churches as well. And how do you recognize it? Well, you recognize the counterfeit by getting acquainted and familiar with the real thing. The more that you are in God's Word, the more that you recognize what it is, the more you'll recognize when something is on the outside. This is one of the dangers that we really fall into if we think, yeah, it's kind of optional to read that thing, as we become, become very susceptible to false teaching that might come our way. And Paul's concerned about that for them and for us. And so he says, no, you've got to safeguard the message so you wouldn't be led astray. Now, of course, we've already seen that Paul has highlighted those people that he is sending greetings to, but as he goes on, it's interesting that he also tells us a little something about the ones who are sending the greetings, because it's not just Paul. These are other people who, thirdly, share the message. They share the ministry, I guess I should say. They share the ministry it seems Paul always had someone traveling with him or at his side or sharing in the ministry, and this is no exception what we have here. We see it as we read on in verse 21. It says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So to Lucius and Jason, and so Potter, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. As with the earlier list, these are just ordinary people, like you and me, who have just chosen to step up and get connected to the work that Paul was doing, and Paul is now celebrating their participation in it all. They've just made their se- themselves available The best known of the list is, of course, Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor who became connected to Paul and Paul's ministry. He's kind of like a son to Paul, and Paul teaches him. In fact, Paul writes two letters to Timothy that are, of course, contained in the New Testament. Tertius is interesting because he greets us in the first person, and he says, I wrote this letter, which should have stood out to you, should have you asking, well, what's going on with that? I thought you've been telling us all along that Paul wrote this letter. Have you been wrong? Have we been wrong? Well, no, we haven't been at all. Here's what's going on. Tertius is like a, like a professional scribe. So he's the one who's writing down what Paul is dictating to him to write. That's actually how many of the, of the letters in the New Testament were taken down. Gaius is this guy that Paul stayed with during his time in Corinth. There weren't any Motel 6s there in Corinth, although if you find a Motel 6 today, it might look like it's 2,000 years old. But uh, there weren't any there, and so you didn't just stay in a hotel. Typically, you would stay with somebody else. And so Gaius is like Paul's Airbnb that he's he's staying at while he's there in Corinth and doing his work and, and writing this letter. Apparently, there was even room in his house for the church to meet. Then there is this other guy, Erastus, who he says is the city treasurer, and that would have made him another one of those upper-class people who is happy to fellowship together with the slaves and others who were there so that they might be one under the ministry of Christ. But this guy, Erastus, is actually important for another reason. Another reason. In 1929 there was a significant archaeological discovery that was made in Corinth. Carolyn and I had the opportunity to see it a few years back when we were there in Corinth, and it actually is a stone. It's a stone, you can see it right here, if we can pull that up. Here's the stone. This is in Corinth. It was uncovered back in 1929, and it was discovered, and it's a pretty significant stone for a few different reasons on this stone, you can actually see a name inscribed. It's up here on the top left. It's right here, and uh, this is Latin, but you can probably pretty much make it out, E-R-A-S-T-U-S. This is our guy. This is Erastus, this same one, at least I believe, the same one. Now, the whole inscription reads there this. Let's pull it up. Erastus in return for his a dial ship And a dial is basically a city manager, one who runs things, a city treasurer who laid the pavement at his own expense. So here you have this guy who Paul says is the city treasurer. He's a city manager. And the inscription says the same thing. You've got this stone that has been dated to mid-century, mid-first century, That's when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. It's when he was there in Corinth. It's when he was writing. And so the natural question comes up, well, is this Erastus and this Erastus the same guy? Well, there are all sorts of similarities between the the two. So if you're going to dismiss that, and this would become significant archaeological evidence for the reliability of the Bible, if you dismiss that, then you have to dismiss a lot of very powerful evidence to say, no, that's not what that is. And of course, some people do because they have, a, they, have a, you know, they have an agenda when it comes to the Bible, and so they're never going to allow for that to be together. But there's pretty significant evidence for it as well. Whatever the case, Erastus and the others share the ministry with Paul and send greetings to these brothers and sisters in the Lord who are there in Rome, where they know this letter is going to. And with that, we come to the final words of these unfamous words of Paul. And what it essentially is, it probably, it might say in your Bible, the doxology, but uh, it's a benediction is what it is. Let me read it for you. Verse 25, As Paul closes his letter, he goes back to one of the absolute essential themes that we have seen earlier on, that he actually started the whole thing off with. He kind of comes and he puts it as a bookend here at the end. You might remember back in chapter 1 in verse 16, he wrote this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks Here at the end he comes back to this glorious good news about this gospel message and how transformative it has been in his life and how he recognizes and understands it is transformative of the lives of others and then from where he says i'm not ashamed of it he has gone on and demonstrated so in all of this book that we have been wrestling our way through from start to finish and as we pointed out all along the way that the gospel is not just something that is a benefit for you as you come to understand who Jesus is and give your heart and your life over to Jesus yes it is that but it is more than that the gospel is that which continues to strengthen and inspire and move us forward the reality of Jesus and his death and his loving resurrection and his power and his victory all of those things continue to strengthen us for living our lives as they are after we come into faith as well it's not just something that helps us to get into faith and then we can kind of jettison it clearly it's it's deeply important for Paul because he recognizes its staying power and how it continues to inspire and encourage and to challenge and to set us up for recognizing who God is and the depth of his love and grace toward us It's been an amazing study to go through all of this. I hope you've learned some of what I've been learning. Oftentimes what they say is that the teacher learns so much more than the students as it were and uh, there's so much here and uh, we've been striving to learn together and I hope it's been as beneficial for you as it has been for me. We've waded through a lot of heavy stuff As we've made our way along, we've talked about the depravity of mankind and God's wrath and election and predestination. We've talked about homosexuality. We have talked about sin and how deep that runs in all of us. We've talked about politics and racism. We've talked about relating to the government. We've talked about paying taxes and a lot of other hot issues as well. And you're still here. And I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad for that. And I know that you love this Letter We've also talked about the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and how He entered into our world to meet us in our sin so that we might find ourselves justified through our response to the gospel that we have been made righteous, declared righteous, and we have seen how he turned as this book came to a close ultimately that he turned to calling us into a response because you never know something because you've got it in your head. You know something as soon as you put it into action with your feet and so he calls us beginning in chapter 12 to very practical application for all of what he has given us and he calls us right there at the outset to make our lives a living sacrifice that we might give ourselves over fully and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ and there have been so many different aspects of application that we've seen over and over and over as we've made our way through this there is so much here for us to do it's kind of like out of the fire hose kind of application right because there's been so much But even just to boil this down as we wrap it up, to hold on to this idea that we are to make our lives a living sacrifice, to ask you, what would that mean for you? What does that mean for you? We talked quite a bit last week about not just making God something that we add into the rest of who we are, but that we would clear out the center place and that we would put him there and that we would allow the rest to fill in around. I can't think of any way to honor this word, this letter more, to honor Christ more than to make that the commitment of our heart. And so as we come and we wrap all of this up, as we pull it all together, it's not just here so that we would understand the depth of the theology that is here. Yes, that's vitally important. But again, if it's only something that we recognize and know in our head and aren't applying with our feet, then we really don't know it. So as we come to the completion, if you're in Christ, recognize that this is something to take and inspire you to that next place. If you're kind of the same as you've been for a long time in Christ, then, then you're missing out on what recognizing what Paul is talking about here, how it can inspire and, and infuse your life with gospel power. So if you're in Christ, that you would focus in on what is that next step of discipleship that I need to do to follow through. If you're not in Christ, that this would be, I can think of no better way to respond than by turning your life over to him by saying, yes, I want to make my life a living sacrifice. I want to give my heart and my life to you that I might participate in this glorious gospel. And so what I want to do as we close this up is not keep talking. I don't want to just pray for you. I want you to pray. I want you to talk to God. I want to give you a moment as you think about what is it that God would be calling me to as a response to this letter where it's just been poured out over and over and over for us. What is the response for you to make? I want to give you a few moments just in quietness, to pray and to make your own response to God, and then I will close this. So, bow your heads, please, and respond to the letter of Romans. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful that through the Apostle Paul, you have helped us to understand so much that we would not have understood apart from what he has taught, apart from what he has written. I thank you for the love your love that is expressed within, for your mercy that has met us where we are, for your grace that has been poured out on our behalf. Indeed, a grace that changes everything, a grace with the power to make us new. And Lord, forgive us for times when we have explored your grace and we've learned what it is, but it's done nothing to change us we've taken it for granted, and Lord, we dare not do that as we come to the conclusion of all that you have given us in Romans. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would commit ourselves, first and foremost, to make ourselves a living sacrifice, submitting our lives, our will, our purposes to your will and to your purpose. Lord, there's no better time than now to put a stake in the ground and say, from this moment forward, I'm going to take and I'm going to allow this to live out, to shine out of who I am in all that I do and in all that I say, a living sacrifice. Lord, these are anything but hollow words that we have in these unfamous last words of Paul. They're inspiring. And Lord, we want to be like those who stood up and served the body and shared the ministry and safeguarded the message. Our names are never going to appear in Scripture, but we can be just like those whose do. So, Lord, what you're calling us to, I pray that we would not be so callous as to set it aside, as to diminish the cross, because we're not allowing it to inspire our walk. Lord, for those who might be here who are not in Christ or maybe just now have made their commitment of life to you, I pray for them too. And if that's you, friend, if you got up to the brink, up to the precipice and couldn't quite get over just to help you, you might just pray something along the lines of, Dear God, I desire to serve you and follow you. I confess my sin. I recognize what you have done on my behalf through the cross. And I seek that justification being made right with you. Change my life. And it's done. Father, thank you again for your glorious goodness to us in giving us this truth. And I pray that as we go from this place, it would continue to resonate in our hearts, that we'd continue to open our journals that we would review what you've taught us and that we would be people following more and more after your heart as a living sacrifices, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.